Amen. If you would, please turn to the Psalms. We're in Psalm 13 this morning. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, indeed, you have dealt bountifully with your people. More than we could ever number. And we pray that you would continue to abound in your grace and mercy to us through your word. Encourage us, strengthen us, convict us where we might need to be convicted and help us to fix our eyes on Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Depth perception is the ability to see the world in three dimensions and to be able to judge the distance between objects. Amazingly, your brain achieves this by processing different pictures from each eye and combining them to form a single 3D image. This allows us to be able to see the distance of other objects. It's how we are able to say, for example, to catch a ball. It also helps us to be able to determine the distance between cars as we're driving on the road or in the highway. And when we cannot properly determine the distance of objects, well, then there's a problem with our eyesight. There's something going on that affects our depth perception. And this problem is not uncommon also with our eyes of faith. It is the eyes of faith that allows us to see Christ in all of life, whether it's at the home or in our job, in church, or doing groceries, how we handle stress, how we handle anxiety, how we handle affliction and suffering, how we enjoy times of prosperity and joy. It is the eyes of faith that allows us to see Christ in all of life, in all seasons. But there, too, there might be a problem with depth perception. And if the problem with the eyes of our faith that translates to this depth perception, then we might not be able to see Christ as closely as he actually is. He might seem distant. He might seem withdrawn. He might seem very far from us, much further than he actually is. And it's this apparent absence or this apparent distance that can make the heart grow sick. So we consider the psalm here this morning, the psalmist's heart was sick. 
And I would argue that's because he had a problem of death perception. He was not able to see the God who was there, or not as closely as he could actually see. He seemed distant. So let's first, as we turn to this psalm, let's consider the full vent of his emotions because of this apparent absence or distance of God. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, we have no idea what he's going through. We don't know what his situation is. We don't know if there's trouble in the home or trouble outside of the home. The passage, the psalm, and its brevity doesn't tell us what exactly is the situation. And that's okay. We don't have to know exactly what he's going through. And this is the, the blessing of ambiguity in the psalms. Many psalms are like this. This is agonizing. There's this pleading. There's this crying out. And we have no idea exactly what has generated this vent of emotions in the, psalm, in the psalmist. But it can be a blessing to us. Because we don't necessarily need to know what's going on to understand what the man is going through, or what the psalmist, what the author is going through. And this helps us to resonate to some degree what the person is experiencing. We may not be familiar with this person's experience, and if we knew it, it would be very, perhaps very different than anything we've experienced before. But you may have felt similarly. You may have felt the weight of emotions. You may have come this morning feeling the same way that the psalmist feels for different reasons. What we do know is that this is a man under affliction. How long, he says, for time? How long, how long, how long, how long? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? This is a man who is left with his own thoughts. He's there, he's thinking, he's contemplating, he's praying. But he's not looking to hear for him, hear himself. He's looking to hear a heavenly voice, a divine voice, a, high, a voice from above. But he's not getting anything. The arrow of his prayers are drawn and they're aimed heavenward. But rather than reaching their target, it seems as though they're returning to him like a boomerang. But you aim your arrows at something, but a boomerang, you just throw it in the air. And it always returns to you. Sometimes you may have felt that way, that your prayers are returning to you unanswered. They're not reaching its intended target. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? It's not the kind of forgetting that we might be thinking or accustomed to. It's a forgottenness that has to do with covenant. Deuteronomy 8.11 talks about this kind of forgetting. It says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. Deuteronomy 4.31 For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. This is not the kind of forgetting like you forgot to complete a task or you forgot something at the grocery store. This is sort of an intentional forgetting. You make an effort to forget something. In this case, in Deuteronomy, this is a person who forgets the commandments of God, 
who knows what is right, know what is commanded, what is demanded of his life, and intentionally disregards the commands of God is said to be to forget them. And for God to forget his covenant is to walk away from the covenant, to disregard his promises to his people, which we know from the scriptures and based on the gospel of Jesus Christ that God will not ever forget his covenant towards his people. So this isn't like God has forgotten who the psalmist is, who is this person who's praying to me. His voice sounds familiar, but I don't really, I can't recall who he is. It's not that kind of forgetting. But to the psalmist, it seems as if God has turned aside from him, as if God has withdrawn his presence, as if God has forgotten his covenant faithfulness. To the psalmist, it's like a husband or wife who deserts their spouse emotionally or physically or spiritually or all the above, that person is said to have forgotten the covenant that they made the person on the altar when they said, I do. This is the psalmist's experience. How long will you hide your face from me? Most likely, he has in mind the great prayer and blessing of Numbers 6, 24 to 26. Many of you are familiar with this, where it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is considered a wonderful prayer and a wonderful blessing because this speaks of God's favorable disposition upon his people. This having the shining face, the shining, smiling face of God upon his people. It is God's intent to treat his people favorably and lovingly. An oriental monarch revealed in his facial expression either his pleasure or displeasure with the party who sought an audience with him. Once the party entered his presence, you could immediately tell whether or not he was pleased with you by just his facial expression. And if he had a disfavorable countenance upon his face, then you'd be afraid. This is what the psalmist is experiencing. Rather than having the smiling face upon him, it seems as if God is looking upon his life with displeasure. So he's experiencing sort of a God who has withdrawn from him, who has withdrawn his blessings, a God who is no longer near to him, who's not walking with him, who's no longer looking upon him favorably. But for whatever reason, for reasons we do not know, whether it was because of something happening in his life or whether it's because God sovereignly just ordained this to happen for his own purposes, God seemed to have with, has withdrawn his wonderful and gracious presence on the person that he loved. Suffering is certainly hard. But that suffering is only magnified even a hundredfold when it feels as if God is distant from you. So he considers this full vent of emotions, and perhaps you come this morning feeling the same way. As I say, you don't need to know exactly the nature of the source of his predicament or what's generated this vent of emotions. 
to some degree, we can kind of resonate with what he's going through. Whether you feel this way right now or have before, we've all had our moments. Perhaps when you've experienced the sting of sorrow or the sharp edge of betrayal or the anxiety that just feels crushing or have perhaps experienced the fear that just paralyzes you or have walked through the dark night of depression. It doesn't matter how long it's been, whether it's a week or a month or a year in that state or whatever, however long that season is, that somebody who feels as if God has withdrawn his presence from him or her, even just 60 seconds feels way too long. Puritan Matthew Henry had once said that the bread of sorrow is sometimes the saint's daily bread. When it comes to us, sometimes our tendency is to respond to the absence of God is for us to then be absent everywhere else. Well, God has withdrawn from me, so I'm going to withdraw as well. God has turned this way, so I'm, then, I'm going to turn this way. To not draw near to God, to, draw not, to not draw near to his people to forsake the fellowship of his people, to forsake the reading of Scripture, to forsake prayer. Because we feel that God is distant, but feeling isn't always reality, is it? The problem of depth perception. And sometimes this problem of depth perception is of our own doing. Sometimes, as the passage I read to you earlier in Isaiah, sometimes the problem is our own sin. Sometimes it's an egregious sin. Sometimes it's a pattern of sin. And we have yet to come before the Lord in confession of our sins and seeking forgiveness of the Lord and coming to God in a, with a heart of repentance. Right? If that is the case, then no wonder you might feel distant from God or God feels distant from you. But if that's the case... The solution is quite simple. It is simply to draw near to the Lord and come to Him in confession of your sins and repentance, to trust in the promises of God that those who come to Him in faith, they are forgiven. However, we don't know. We don't know. Sometimes we just don't know why God seems to have withdrawn His presence from us. He has his own purposes. We know that he purposes all things for the good of those who love him. Sometimes we wish to know why. Sometimes it's just unexplainable. Sometimes it just maybe perhaps comes in suddenly. where We feel that God is not near to us. Which then lends itself to feeling how the psalmist felt in Psalm 13. So he gives his full vent of his emotions, and secondly, he then makes a desperate request. Verse 3, he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So he mentions enemies. He mentions enemy, and we, something else we don't know the answers to. We don't, what enemy is he talking about? Are these enemies within, within his own household? Right, this psalm was written by David, who's a king, that certainly a king has his enemies. Maybe these are enemies without foreign invaders. 
but this is something else we don't really need to know the answers to. Because when you're feeling like the psalmist felt, when you feel this affliction, when you feel these weighty emotions, almost anything can be considered an enemy. Anything that is impeding your joy in the Lord can be considered an enemy. Anything that is impeding your holiness can be an enemy. It can be your flesh. It certainly is sin. The world can be considered an enemy. Your own depression can be considered an enemy. As you intend to pursue God, and God seems to go further and further away. The problem isn't so much with the enemy. I think the psalmist is telling us that the problem is you feel as though you are losing the battle. There are enemies surrounding you. And that no matter how much you try, if you do try, because some don't try at all, but even if you do try, it seems as if you're just losing. The tears won't stop. You can't get out of bed. You lack the motivation to do anything, much less to pray. It just seems like, and like your days are just this endless, cloudy day. It just won't give way to the light of the sun. He's concerned about death. And I don't think this is a literal death. I don't think he is actually afraid of dying physically, but I think this is actually a metaphorical death. I think this is probably one of the enemies that he is referring to. He's just talked about his emotions and what, how he felt with God's apparent absence that God has withdrawn from him. And this is agonizing. This is painful. And certainly, for someone who loves God and wants nothing more than to be near the presence of God, to feel the absence of God can feel like a kind of death. But this is the most agonizing thing about affliction is when God seems distant. It is like suddenly being hated by the one that you love most. It certainly feels like a kind of death. And the question is, do you love God that much? Do you love God that much that if he were to actually withdraw his presence from you, that he would no longer look upon your life favorably, that he would disregard your life with no intent of treating you with the grace and kindness and love that he's known for, would that feel like a kind of dying to you? Would you be able to resonate with the Psalm, with Psalm 63, verse 3, where it says, your steadfast love is better than life? Is that how you view the steadfast love of the Lord? Would you say today that God's love for me is better than life itself? So he prays to God, and there's a prayer of divine illumination. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He says, consider he says, look to me, Lord. Cast your eyes upon me. Please notice me. Please be aware of me. I am here. 
and I am in desperate need of your presence. Look to me. Answer me, O Lord. He's asking that God would once again deal favorably with him. Deal favorably with God, with me, O Lord. Look upon me with your eye to do good to my life. He says, light up my eyes. In other words, help me to see rightly. Help me to not see through my feelings, but help me to see according to what you have revealed. Help me to see with the eyes of faith. Essentially, it is a prayer of restored fellowship. Restore, O Lord, your fellowship with me. Walk with me. Help me to be near your presence. So that enemies may not prevail against me. So that enemies may not gloat over me. There's a peculiar concern over enemies. Essentially, he's grounding his pleas and his cries on covenant faithfulness. He knows that God is a God who is faithful to his people. As he says in Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So this is a prayer Asking for confidence, the confidence that comes from knowing that you are with me. Despite my enemies, whether they are actual enemies, whether they are actual people, whether they are metaphorical enemies, whether they are my own emotions, let them not prevail over me. Even if they should continue to surround me, help me to continue to walk in the confidence of knowing that you are with me. Help me to walk with the peace that comes from knowing that you are faithful to your covenant. So this is his prayer. It's a prayer for restored fellowship. A prayer for renewed confidence. A prayer for renewed peace in the Lord. So after giving full vent of his emotions and making his desperate request, lastly, notice then this dramatic, notice a dramatic turnaround. Verse 5, he concludes, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Again, he's appealing to covenant faithfulness. He is rejoicing, he is worshiping, he is singing to the Lord in the present because of what he knows. He's trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. He has trusted in God's love, he's remembered how God has dealt bountifully with him. He is trusting in divine revelation. He remembers what has God revealed about himself, and that is what I am anchoring myself on, and not my feelings. Right? Divine revelation must always trump our emotions. Your emotions certainly are real, but our emotions are not always reality. Emotions are not always accurate. Emotions don't always tell the truth. And this is why we need to take divine revelation. We need to take what God has written in his word and take our feelings and interpret our feelings through what God has written in his word. 
Now notice, even, in this, even though there's this dramatic turnaround, there's, no, there's nothing here that tells us that his situation has changed. It doesn't tell us that God has somehow provided for him or answered his prayers. In this short psalm, it doesn't tell us anything that somehow things have changed. And yet he still worships. Deliverance must always lead to worship. When God answers prayer, the right thing, the thing that the saints, those who trust in Jesus Christ, the thing that they do that they cannot help but do, that they desire to do, is to worship God. Whether God has answered prayer, whether God has come through, whether God has provided, whether God has healed, whether God has given you boldness or encouragement to share the gospel, whatever the case may be, the response is always to worship God. But deliverance or answered prayer is never required for worship. Do you understand the difference? Yes, answered prayer lends itself to worship and should result in worship, but we do not need to wait in order for God to answer prayer in order for us to worship. And that's because of who God is, because God is holy, because God is majestic, because Christ is Savior, because Christ is King, because Christ is holy, because Christ is Creator. Just because of the definition of who He is, He is worthy of our lives, He is worthy of our worship, He is worthy of our praise, whether or not He answers our prayers. But we pray, we plead, and we ask. And when God, according to his will, answers our prayers, we certainly do worship. But this is how we know that we love the Lord. When we worship him, even though our answers or our prayers continue to come back to us, Though our prayers are directed heavenward. But when God does come through, when God does provide, when God does provide the encouragement that you need in times of affliction, it it serves to deepen the roots of our trust in the Lord. But deliverance is not necessary in order to trust in the Lord. What we are called to do is trust who God is according to what he has revealed about himself in his word. Knowing who God is helps us to trust in him, even in times of affliction. While God may have withdrawn his blessings, he has not withdrawn his presence, though it seems like he has. And this is what the depth perception of the eyes of faith allows us to see, and that is that God is closer than you think he actually is. He is closer to you than you might feel in this moment. And what he's, the psalmist, listen to what the psalmist does. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He's anchoring himself in the steadfast love of the Lord. He's remembering God's faithfulness to his people. The steadfast love of the Lord is like a life jacket to the Christian. When his or her emotions sink them deep down in the oceans, 
the bottomless ocean of affliction and distress and suffering and unable to see clearly the presence of King Jesus, the steadfast love of the Lord is this life jacket that immediately inflates, submerged under the waters, and that will bear you up to the surface so that you might see Christ clearly. There's the steadfast love of the Lord that reminds us that Christ is near. You might feel the same emotions the psalmist is experiencing, but you can also experience the same encouragement by remembering the steadfast love of the Lord, by casting your eyes upon Jesus Christ. And the gospel itself is a wonderful, tangible way of reminding ourselves of the steadfast love of the Lord, even when we don't feel like God is loving towards us. We just simply look to the cross and remember the steadfast love of God as he withdrew his presence from his own son, as his son hung on the cross, so that you and I would never experience the full weight of God withdrawing his presence from us. We need to look only to the cross and remember the steadfast love of the Lord as God hid his face from his own son, Jesus, which compelled Jesus to cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And experience that so that you and I would never have to experience the weight of God removing and hiding his face from us. The gospel reminds us of the steadfast love of God as God himself smote and inflicted his own son with a punishment for sin so that you and I may never have to experience that punishment ourselves. But even as we look to the gospel and are reminded of the Christ who came into the world to die for sin, and in that last hour, in his agonizing hour, even God's presence was never too far. It was the presence of God that brought darkness upon the land. It was the presence of God that caused an earthquake and tear the veil and the temple asunder. The presence of God was there as Jesus gave up his spirit unto the Father. The Spirit of God certainly was there and present as he rose his son from the grave just a few short days later. And now we can look to the empty cross as an ever-present reality and reminder of the steadfast love of God towards his people. I'm encouraged by Psalm 25, and I hope you find it encouraging as well, where it says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. All of them, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. No matter if it's a time of affliction or distress or deep depression, the paths of the Lord are always steadfast love and faithfulness. And that is what he intends to communicate to you even in those times of affliction. So by way of conclusion, let me extract some lessons for us with regards to prayer. So we sort of begin a new season in the summer of working through the Psalms. It might be helpful for us to learn some lessons from the Psalms that 
hopefully and prayerfully we can continue to apply as we work through the Psalms. So here are some lessons on prayer. First, pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. Sometimes you have those experiences in life like the psalmist did where you might have these full weight of emotions. You come with buckets full of emotions to bring to God. But sometimes you don't have the words to express those emotions. Sometimes you search for the words and the words just don't come. This is where the psalms are helpful. The psalms are the poetry for the human soul. They give words to the emotions that we feel but can't find the words for. You know, when you write like an academic paper or write something, a blog online, and you put in a quote or some kind of statistic where you're required to cite your source, or so that you may not be accused of being a plagiarist, when it comes to the Psalms and praying the Psalms, it doesn't matter which Psalm it is, it doesn't matter if you remember the reference, it doesn't matter. I think the Psalms actually encourage us to plagiarize the Psalms. So plagiarize the Psalms. Use the Psalms. Pray the Psalms as a devotion unto God, as a way of communicating your emotions unto the Lord and making your requests known to God. Another lesson on prayer is to imitate the pattern. Imitate its pattern of what we see here in Psalm 13. First, it's a venting of the emotions. Sometimes it is right and proper that we follow the pattern of, say, the Lord's Prayer, where we begin with God and acknowledge God and praise God. But sometimes it is right for us to just simply go before God and just express exactly what we're feeling. Follow then by the prayer, making your request known to God. But don't just imitate that. Imitate also the turnaround that you see in the psalm. Right? There's no change, as I said, there's no change of circumstance or situation that's happening here that's, that's then compelled them to start worshiping God. There's no change of circumstance, but instead there's a change of attitude. And how is this possible? It's possible because he's anchored himself in the steadfast love of the Lord. He's remembered that God is a faithful God who is always faithful to his people, to those who walk according to his ways, to those who continue to come to Christ. And it is this that may not always change your situation or circumstance, but it can certainly change your attitude. It can change your perception. Another lesson on prayer is to be unafraid to pray short prayers. Psalm 13 is only six verses. But hopefully you see now just how packed it is with so much meaning, with so much truth, with so many emotions. You should have no fear that God will not listen to you or answer your prayers just because you pray short prayers. Neither should you feel as if God is, will be much more inclined to answer your prayers because you make very long prayers. Right? Jesus himself warned about this. Do not copy or, or, or look at the teachers, the religious teachers who heap up empty words in order to be heard by others. Long prayers does not always guarantee that God will hear with an intention of responding. 
Sometimes what matters most is not the quantity of our words, but the quality of our words. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it is absolutely necessary that those knees stayed glued to the floor, praying and pleading and asking. But sometimes it is also okay to pray short prayers, taking 60 seconds to pray Psalm 13 in a genuine, heartfelt way that means every word is better than praying 60 minutes of words that you don't really care about, that are unfeeling and not even desirous of the thing that you're praying for. Another lesson, quite simply, is to pray. Pray, pray, pray. If you're in a good season right now and life is great and wonderful, praise the Lord for that, but pray. If you're in a time of affliction, if you're in distress, pray. Some Christians will not pray until God abruptly disturbs them from their slumber so that they can finally wake up and start praying. And that is a means of God's grace. But sometimes, some will not be awakened to pray, no matter how bad life gets, no matter how much God seems to have withdrawn from their life, some people would rather stay asleep than be roused to pray. God seems too distant, God seems too far, or perhaps prior to the affliction that has come upon your life, your life wasn't really all that characterized by prayer at all. But now is a time to pray. Regardless of whether or not your life was characterized by prayer up until this point, now is a time to pray. Now is a time to make sure that your life is characterized by prayer. Make every effort to pray. Now it is a time to wake up and pray. The renegade prophet Jonah is running away from the Lord. Shows us the, I think in this life, we shows us the two different kinds of Christians. Where he's to sleep on the ship not knowing that his life was in mortal danger because God was after him. And it wasn't until he was finally thrown overboard and swallowed up by the fish, and as he sat in the dark belly of the fish, was he finally roused to prayer. He's someone who finally got it. The question is, would you rather be the Jonah who's asleep on the ship, or would you rather be the Jonah who's the dark belly of the fish in prayer? Isaiah 50 verse 10 says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light not withdraw from God, not cease prayer, but to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. If you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope that you will pray this morning. Because God certainly is distant from you because your sins have made a separation between you and God. His word promises that one day you will feel the full weight of his withdrawal and the full weight of his punishment for your sins. But if you will trust in Jesus Christ, if you will come before the Lord in confession of your sins and pray to God that Jesus will come upon your life, then Jesus will take that penalty for you. Jesus will absorb the wrath of God on your behalf. And Jesus will bridge that gap that sin has created and draw you near to the Lord. 
so you may have fellowship with him, so you may have eternal life with him, so you may have forgiveness of your sins. I pray and hope that you, whether it's a short prayer or whether your knees are glued to the floor, that you will not leave this morning without going before the Lord in prayer and asking that Christ save you from your sins. Fifth and lastly, something else that this psalm teaches us to do is to withdraw from the bank of God's demonstrable faithfulness. Withdraw from the bank of God's demonstrable faithfulness. The psalmist, what he does, he recalls the past. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Again, no indication that his situation has changed, but what is he doing? He sings to the Lord and he is recounting what God has done in his life. He has dealt dealt bountifully with me. He is recalling God's past faithfulness, whether it was a day ago, whether it was a week ago, whether it was years ago. He is intentionally remembering what God has done for him in the past, which lends itself to him worshiping today. You have a bank with you that travels wherever you go, You have access to 24-7, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're going through, you have this bank that is accessible to you. And every time that God answers prayer, every time that God provides for you, every time that God comes through for you in some way, every time God does something or blesses you in your life, it's as if God is, is, is depositing money into your bank account over and over and over and over and over again. And you have access to this bank so that when you are in a season of affliction, when you are in distress, when you are in depression, when you are suffering, when God seems distant from you, all you have to do is to withdraw this monetary encouragement from this bank of God's demonstrable faithfulness. Recall what God has done in the past to encourage you today. This is what the psalmist does. Let us learn from his example of what it is to trust in the steadfast love for the Lord. God is closer than we often feel. God is closer than we often think. If you are today in a season when the light of the sun is obstructed by the dark clouds of despair or suffering or affliction, prayer will help you to see the God who is there. Not only who was there, but who was also present with you. If you're today in a season when God seems to be shining his face upon you, and he's blessing you and keeping you, you must also pray. For you must never let these kinds of seasons distort your depth perception of Christ, which can happen if you fail to pray and let that season make you forget your God. We must pray in all seasons and at all times. So let us draw near to the Lord, for he is closer than he appears. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word tells us, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. And Lord, we desire to draw near to you this morning. And we pray, God, through our efforts as we've worshipped by 
lifting up our voices to proclaim the excellencies of God in Christ, as we lifted up our prayers to you, as we've participated in listening and receiving your word, we pray that these efforts would be a way that you would bless as our drawing near to you so that you would also draw near to us. Lord, and help us to stand in truth. Help us to rest in the promises that are written for us in the scriptures. Regardless of how we feel, regardless of how distant you might seem to us, help us look to the cross as a reminder to us that Jesus is with us, that his rod and his staff, they comfort us. Help us to be encouraged by these things and help us to encourage one another with these truths and with these words. We thank you, Jesus, for being with us, for being for us, for dying for us, for rising from the grave for us, so that we have, may have this ever-abiding fellowship with you. We thank you, and it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.